Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. In the book of Revelation, we have two more letters left uh, to handle in the book of Revelation, so I'm excited to be able to tackle the last Second to last one with you today. So if you are finding your place in your Bibles, it's Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So flip all the way to the very end and find Revelation chapter 3. And we are going to read to the church in Philadelphia today. So that starts in, you know, verse 7. Um, and if you get your finger there, uh, we will uh, we'll just review a little bit uh, for the folks that maybe haven't been with us or have missed a week, so forth and so on. Uh, we are studying the seven churches of Revelation and what Jesus would say to them. And what we've realized as we've studied the beginning of Revelation is when Jesus says, I'm writing to the seven churches, he means he's literally writing to seven specific churches, the ones on the map here. But also seven is the number of completion, of totality. So when he says, I'm writing to the seven churches, he's writing to those churches and every church that would come after them from here on forward to the end of time, which means what Jesus wrote to these churches in Revelation that we will read is very applicable to us today as well. And so we've taken each letter, figured out what it meant for them, and then we figure out what it means for us. And we are ever so excited to have the word of God this morning. Um, Just a brief review to catch us up on the roadmap. Ephesus, they did good and they did bad. So Jesus wrote to them and he said, listen, um, you have so much head knowledge. You understand what is written in the word, but you completely lack the ability to love people. So you have head knowledge, but no heart knowledge of who I am. And you need to repent of that. You need to learn to love all over again. Then he wrote to Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the two cities that got no critique from Jesus. And we're going to read about the second city that got no critique today. But Smyrna, they were under deep persecution. And so Jesus says, listen, you are giving your life because you serve and follow me. So no critique. Just keep doing that. I love you and I'm with you. Keep going in the direction you're going. That was a hard message for Smyrna, but a good one. Um, The third city, Pergamum, um, they they had this idea that it was okay to be Jesus plus Christians. You could be a Christian, a Christ follower, and add things to Christianity, like pagan worship and so forth and so on. And Jesus wanted them to know, listen, there's no Jesus plus. There's just Jesus, period. You can't add to me and still be a Christ follower. And so he challenged them to repent of that. Uh, The fourth city here, Thyatira, uh, they embraced false teachers. They welcomed false teachers into their pulpit, into their church. They embraced the teachings of those teachers, and they didn't see a problem with it. And Jesus said, I see a big problem with people who teach things that are contrary to who I am. So he asked them to repent in a very strong way of the false teaching. And last week we looked at Sardis, this little town right here. Um, This was a town that had fallen asleep. They had grown comfortable with who they were and their own identity and security of their city. They had ceased to function as Christ intended his church to function. They would show up to church on Sunday, pat themselves on the back, and leave Sunday afternoon, never really engaging culture, never really growing in terms of discipleship and personal growth. And Jesus says, um, Christ followers grow, and Christ following churches should not be sleepy. They should wake up and engage the culture around them. So, Jesus critiqued Sardis in that way. This morning, we're going to read about the Church of Philadelphia. Um, Anybody know what Philadelphia means? 
city of brotherly love, right? Like we have a Philadelphia in the United States. So if you Google, just FYI, ancient Philadelphian ruins, you are going to get a whole lot of stuff about Philadelphia in the United States. And it's ancient ruins from the beginning of its city time, okay? Um, you, ha you have to be sure to specify um, biblical Philadelphia when you want to search for ruins. By the way, not many ruins in biblical Philadelphia. We'll get there just for a moment. Um, okay, so Philadelphia, uh, could you hit the red dot light, Corey, for me? Just add a few, a little bit more contrast to uh, the slide here. Okay, this is an aerial view of current uh, Philadelphia, also known as Alesiar in Turkey. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but um, uh, there's a lot of names I don't know how to pronounce, FYI, because um, I'm just not that smart about names, but there we go. Uh, so modern day in Turkey, this is modern day Philadelphia, but the old school Philadelphia fell right about here, okay? And um, there are almost no ruins. I have gone through countless commentaries, my um, online pastoral um, research software that catalogs all kinds of the pictures that we've seen thus far, there is almost nothing in Philadelphia to show. I was so sad because I like showing historical pictures so people can kind of get an idea. So unfortunately, this is the picture that we have to work on this morning because modern Philadelphia was built right on top of ancient Philadelphia and there are almost no ruins that date to the period that we are talking about today. So um, what we need to know about Philadelphia is it was founded in 150 BC. So that's um, really recent if we think about it. The city we talked about last week, Sardis, was, um, was uh, founded in 1200 BC. This is 150 BC. So founded much closer to the time of Christ, founded by a guy named King Attalus II. Anybody familiar with him? Yeah, no, I wasn't either, okay? His nickname was Philadophus, okay? Because he loved his older brother so much, okay? Um, and so when he built this city, he named it Philadelphia because he loved his older brother. He was like, I love my brother. This is, this, this is going to be the city of brotherly love because I love my brother and I built this city, so forth and so on. So that's a great um, thing for him to do. Um, it is located, you can't really tell from this picture, but the old Acropolis, the old city center, is located on a high plateau, and it is positioned in this uh, in this valley area, um, just great for commerce. Um, and uh, it was called the Gateway to the East. So if we look at the map, uh, Philadelphia is right here, and you kind of go east. It's considered one of the Gateway to the East cities because anybody coming from the east kind of went through Philadelphia the way the road system went, and anybody going to the east had to go through Philadelphia. And so you had a lot of um, cross-country passage running through Philadelphia. Um, the reason that Philadelphia was built where it was built uh, by King Attalus is really actually quite interesting. It was established to be a center for and a missionary center for, and I use missionary in the loose term in terms of not Christian message, but spreading a message, okay, um, for the Greek language and culture in Eastern Lydia. Lydia was um, all of what we know as Turkey now, um, it was uh, called Lydia back in the day. And uh, they built Philadelphia to be the place where Greek culture would be so strong and go forth from there that the Lydian culture would cease to exist. That was their hope and their prayer, that Greek would take over. The language and the culture and the gods and everything that was Greek would take over the Lydian culture. Now, within 100 years of establishing Philadelphia, the Lydian language and culture ceased to exist. Philadelphia was positioned so well that anybody going east or west passed through it in trade and in commerce, 
and uh, the Greek culture took over. And so that's how uh, most of the Greek culture happened in that uh, day and age. Now, um, the volcanic area that it lived in, highly volcanic, okay? Um, volcanoes all over the place, terrible earthquakes. Sardis um, and Philadelphia were knocked out by an earthquake in AD 17. We learned a little bit about that last week. Um, but because of all of the volcanic action, there is some great fertile soil in this area. Um, and so what they did was they raised wine fields, grape fields, right? So they could produce grapes that would make wine that goes right in line with the Greek culture. The fact that they worshiped Dionysus, who was the god of wine um, and partying and drunkenness and so forth and so on. Um, it suited them very well that they could uh, raise grapes for that. The problem is you might have great ground in terms of production of grapes, but because of the volcanic action, you have terrible earthquakes all the time in this region. Um, in AD 17, we learned that the earthquake destroyed Sardis and Philadelphia, along with 10 other cities in that area. The fear of earthquakes in this area, in Philadelphia, was so constant and so devastating were the earthquakes, the people actually chose to live in the valley outside of the protected city walls. And that must tell you something, because in that day, when armies were constantly trying to attack cities, if you chose to live outside of the fortified walls of your city, you were saying, it is better that I risk an army invasion on my home than I stay within the walls of the city and risk being crushed by an earthquake that is so violent and so regular. And so people, rather than finding refuge in city, they found refuge outside of the city. And um, the folks who did live in the city, whenever an earthquake came, records tell us that they ran for the outside of the city. They ran for the plateau because they did not want to be crushed. Now, in AD 17, this earthquake that destroyed Philadelphia and Sardis, it leveled the city. And um, in that day and age, you had to pay as a city, you had to pay tribute to your Caesar, to your Roman leaders. You had, every year, you had a huge tax to pay. And when the city of Philadelphia was um, leveled, uh, the emperor said, listen, um, I'm going to forgive five years of your tribute to me so that you can rebuild. And they were so overjoyed. I mean, could you imagine trying to rebuild your city and still having to pay Caesar his money? It's nearly impossible. And so Caesar said, I forgive all of your debts for the next five years. Go ahead and rebuild. In fact, I'll send resources your direction to do so. When they rebuilt their city, they renamed it. They renamed it Neo Caesarea, New Caesar. They were so happy with what the Caesar had done for their city that they renamed their city the New Caesar because they just wanted to honor him for what he had done. Um, uh, they built a monument to uh, Caesar, and they organized a new cult of worship. They instituted a new religion to Caesar's son to honor him so uh, he would feel gratified in the ways that he had served them. Now, um, over its time in history, it took on the name Neo Caesarea. It took on the name Flavia, which was uh, a way to honor the emperor and the Roman uh, dynasty. Um, Neo, uh, Philadelphia also earned the Temple Warden. Do you remember that's kind of like the, um, it's like the trophy for being the one who loves Rome the most. Um, and so I, I don't know what else to call it. I mean, we don't really have anything in our day and age. No one city in America gets the, you know, award that says, hey, you love Washington, D.C. the most. It doesn't work like that, okay? I don't even know if that's the right equivalent, but it doesn't exist in our culture. And so it's like a gold star for the city 
something that would be written in um, limestone or in marble above their city center that says, we are the temple keeper. We are the one that loves Rome the most, neater, neater other cities. And uh, the seven cities of Revelation, it would get passed among them throughout the, the years. But they earned it as well. They earned the nickname uh, Little Athens after a while because of their grape production and their wine production and their embracing of uh, culture uh, and their pagan cults and their festivals and their worship. They look just like Little Athens. Have you ever been to um, uh, Aspen, anybody? Okay, so it's just like a beautiful ski resort, right? So I'm from a hometown, uh, we're from Whitefish, Montana, and Whitefish, Montana's a beautiful little hometown, but it has this desire to be like a big ski resort, and right now it's kind of getting there, but for a while it's like, oh, it's a little Aspen, uh, because it's got all the, it's got all the, you know, the stuff, just smaller amounts, okay? It's not as fancy, it's not as big, but it's still pretty good, and so it earned the nickname, uh, you know, Little Aspen among locals. Needless to say, uh, they called themselves Little Athens because they worshipped Dionysus, they produced wine, they had cult festivals, it was great. Um, in this city of Philadelphia, there was a Jewish population alongside of the pagan worshippers who worshipped all of the cult gods and goddesses. Um, and, uh, and the Jewish worshippers, um, they were the ones that gave the main persecution to the Christians. So if you were a Jew and you came to know Christ as your personal savior, all of a sudden the Jews said this, you were once welcome in our temple, and now you are excommunicated. We shut the door to you, and you are not permitted in our place of worship anymore. So Christians once had a fellowship with their Jewish brothers and sisters, no longer did, and they felt closed off from all society. They were not part of pagan worship. They could not be part of Jewish worship because they did not worship the same ways, and the Jews said, we're not going to have anything to do with you because you're different than us. You worship a false god is what the Jews would say. Now, we don't know much about the Christian church in Philadelphia. Historical records don't tell us too much. Um, the Bible tells us a little bit, and that's what we're going to read today in just a minute. What we do know, according to Scripture, is that the church in Philadelphia existed, it was small, and it was faithful. And that's about the summation of what we know about the history of the church. Um, overall, this entire city of Philadelphia lived in a very precarious balance of comfort brought about by its location in trade and commerce and its relationship to Rome, um, and, uh, and fear of deadly earthquakes looming just around the corner. So they had this comfort and safety of Rome, but Rome couldn't really do anything about the earthquakes that devastated them over and over and over again. Can you imagine living in a city or near a city where every time an earthquake happens, you have to drop everything and flee away from your home because it might crumble down on top of you? And that it happens so frequently that you choose to live outside of the protection of the city walls and risk elements and armies and so forth and so on. This was a precarious city, um, and this is the city that the church of Philadelphia called its home. If you would, join with me in Revelation chapter 3 and stand for the reading of the word. I'm going to remind us of this uh, quote from Revelation 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That would be me this morning. I'm going to receive a blessing from reading the word of the Lord this morning. But blessed are those who hear the word and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And that is you this morning, if you choose to hear and keep the word of the Lord. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. And who shuts, 
and no one will open. Now, I'm going to pause right there. This is Jesus, and he's identifying himself as the one who has the keys of David. He's in the lineage of David. He's giving himself the messianic title. He says, I am the Messiah. I hold all of the authority of the kingdom of David. I am the one who reigns forever and ever on the throne of the kingdom of David. And with that key, if I open a door, no one can close it. And if I lock a door, no one can open it. I have ultimate authority in the kingdom of God. Now I know your works, and behold, I've set before you an open door, which is good if Jesus is saying that, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, but you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, they lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, so hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will write on him my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of God for us this morning. You may be seated. Um, so Jesus writes to Philadelphia, and he says a few things to them. Um, he doesn't have any critique for Philadelphia this morning. There's no, you should have done, I wish you could have you might could think about in the future. There was none of that. There was simply this, and it's the same thing he said to Smyrna. I know. How much comfort is it when someone comes alongside of you and you're struggling and someone just says, I know. We talked about that with Smyrna a little bit. When someone can wrap their arms around your shoulder and say, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've walked this road. I understand this route. I know. There's a great sense of comfort that comes from that. God walks up to Church Philadelphia, and he says, I know, you're weak. You have pretty much nothing. You're excommunicated from your Jewish friends. You aren't part of the pagan culture. You live in constant fear. You may have been locked out of the Jewish temple here on earth, but Jesus says, I will always have a door open for you in my fellowship. You will always have access to me. I know that you are faithful, and I will ever be faithful to you. And to those who say they follow God, but they don't follow God, that would be the Jewish population, by the way. Um, he says, I will make them see the truth. So you are faithful, Philadelphia. I know you have absolutely nothing. Just keep being faithful. And those people that are giving you problems, one day I will make them bow down before you and they will recognize that I loved you and that you are my people, which is kind of insulting to the Jewish people who believe they were the chosen people of God, right? They were God's chosen race, holy priesthood, set apart, so forth and so on. And Jesus is telling the Christian church in Philadelphia, I will let the Jews know that I have loved you. There's a beautiful transition here between um, the Old Testament Jewish church and the New Testament Christian church. And it's one we need to pay attention to because there is a delineation between the two and Jesus makes it here. He says this, one day I will make them see the truth 
And in scripture, in other places, it says one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? But some will do it willingly, right? Some will do it joyfully and some might do it remorsefully because at the point in time that their knees bow, it will be too late for them to recognize of their own accord that Christ was Lord. And so Jesus says, yeah, one day every knee will recognize that I am Lord, I am faithful, I am Jesus. You, church of Philadelphia, you get it. And the door to my faithfulness is open to you forever and forever and forever. Don't worry about those other people. Just keep being faithful. Don't worry about the troublemakers. I will take care of them. Just be faithful. If you have little money, little comfort, little population, be faithful. That's what he says to them. Second thing he says is hold fast. This is a good one, right? When you have little, nothing else, what Jesus says to do is hold fast. He says, I am coming soon. And it's put in the context of right after he says the, the folks that, um, how does he phrase it? I want to get Jesus's words right here. I don't like to misquote Jesus. I will come and make them bow down before you. Um, you've kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who live on the earth. Now, in Revelation, there are multiple ways to look at things, and so some people will say all of this has already happened, and some people will say none of it has happened, and we are looking forward to what is going to come in terms of the rapture and the end times and so forth and so on. I'm not going to open that debate today. All that we need to know is that Jesus says one day his wrath will come upon those who have not believed on him. Whether that happens now or later or some point in between or all of the above, we might get into that later in the book of Revelation as we digest uh, the second half of this book in another series. What we need to know now is that Jesus says, if you follow me and are faithful and you hold fast, you will escape my wrath, which is good. Amen? Yeah. I know we should get a better amen than that because the wrath of God is pretty devastating. Amen? Okay, good. I'm, I'm excited that you are excited about escaping the wrath of God. Um, if not, we would need to have a whole other discussion this morning. Um, Jesus says, those who have trusted in him, who hold fast, who keep to the word of God and do not deny his name, will escape the wrath of God. Whenever that happens, they will not be subject to the wrath of God. That is a very good thing. Those who have not trusted in Christ will not be subject to the same escape. They will endure the wrath of God. Jesus promises that he will keep his church safe from his wrath, he will wrap them in his love, as it were. And uh, to put it in terms of Philadelphia, the ground might shake around them, but he who is faithful will keep them. Amen? So he says, no matter what happens around you, you are to be faithful and hold fast to my name. Um, the thing that he promises them is this. You will become a pillar. Yes! Anybody looking forward to that? Anybody like, of all the things that Jesus promises, I want to be a pillar. Nobody? Right? Yeah, you? Okay, good. Yeah, that's good. We'll take it. <laughs> Let me explain to you why this is really cool, okay? Um, now remember, Jesus writes specifically to churches. He is talking to them where they are at culturally, okay? Um, so when it comes to this idea of a pillar, um, after large earthquakes in that day and age, the things that were left standing were what? Pillars, right? So um, after large earthquakes, the only things left standing were pillars in the community. And Jesus was promising, he is faithful, 
that if they um, would continue to be faithful, they would become immovable and unknockdownable, okay, in his kingdom. Um, that forever and ever and ever, they would be a strong presence in the kingdom of God. A kingdom where they don't have to flee because they're not going to get knocked down. Though the earth is going to shake around them, they will be steadfast and immovable because of God's love in them. It's a, it's a really beautiful thing to be considered a pillar in the kingdom of God, in the temple of God, that will happen one day in some glorious way that I can't begin to imagine as God enacts his uh, final works on this earth, that if we are but faithful, there is hope that we will be a strong pillar that upholds the temple of God in the kingdom. I think that that's pretty cool. Now, what else is known about um, pillars back in this day and age? Um, this is a pillar from that day and age, and there's this uh, writing right here. Um, if uh, you were a faithful servant to whoever, to the kingdom of Rome, to whatever was being built at that point in time, they would take your name and they would inscribe it at the base of a pillar so that forever and ever and ever, as long as that pillar stood, um, you would be honored as your name would be on that pillar. Um, so when Jesus tells his church, um, you know, just like those who are faithful to give lots of money to build the false temples and those who are uh, faithful to actually cut the stone and so forth and so on, and their names would be inscribed on that temple forever and ever, as you faithfully pour your life out for the kingdom of God, as you faithfully serve and you faithfully give, even if you have absolutely nothing, but you pour out your life, I will take your name and I will inscribe your name on a pillar in the kingdom of heaven. Um, ever, any of you been to churches that like uh, name tag everything, like every window has a name tag, every chair has a name tag? It's kind of a similar idea, that it's a way to honor someone um, who has done something significant. And Jesus says, if you hold fast and you love me, that is something significant in my kingdom. And I want to honor you by inscribing on you, my pillar, the name of my new city and the name of me, the kingdom that lasts forever and ever. So here's what's kind of trippy. Jesus says, you're going to be a pillar in his kingdom, steadfast and immovable forever and ever. And on you, he will write the name of his city and the name of his glorious name, which scripture says we don't know, only Jesus knows the glorious name that he has. He will write that on you forever and ever and ever. You are going to be known as God's people in his temple, reigning with him and ruling with him and experiencing life with him. And it is going to be a beautiful thing. I want my name on a pillar and I want God's name written on my heart. But here's what he also promises, that he will not only make the faithful become pillars in the kingdom uh, and on them and in them, he will inscribe his name forever because their identity will never be in question in terms of God's kingdom. There will never be, do they belong to me? Do they not belong to me? Maybe they belong to me now, but maybe they don't. The, the pillar has a chip in it. I mean, it's kind of, it didn't get built right. It's an awkward looking one. This one missing the scroll at the top. This one doesn't have solid footing. But Jesus says to you, in my kingdom, your pillar will be made perfect because your identity is found not in who you were, but in who I am and what I've done for you. And so he will write himself on you. And it says in the scriptures, that he will write his name in our hearts, that he will become part of who we are at our very foremost of our being, that we are the people of God and he dwells within us and we are to be faithful to that. That's a beautiful promise that God gives his people. 
Now, the city of Philadelphia had taken name after name after name through its generations, right? It was Philadelphia, it was Neo-Caesarea, it was Flavia, it was Little Athens. It had a few others I didn't even mention. It took a lot of names over its day and age. And it took a lot of names because the emperor wanted to attach its name to the city or they wanted to honor the emperor. But Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia, you will not have multiple names over a multiple period of time. You as a set of believers will have one name forever and for always. And it's not a Roman emperor. It's the king of kings who loves you and who died for you. And that is pretty impressive. I can't wait to be a pillar in the kingdom of God one day. Now, I had to ask myself, what does this mean for us? Because um, Smyrna, I got, Sardis, I got this one. I chewed on a little bit and I chewed on a little bit. And I kept thinking it can't be as simple as it looks. Like, right? Like sometimes you read scripture and you, you, you're like, you get your, your axe and your pitchfork and you're digging deep through that and you're trying to find the deep significant meaning and you realize it was sitting right there in front of you the whole entire time. And you just had to like step back and go, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't really hard to find. God made this one easy for me and I was making this difficult for me. So here's, here's the basic summation of what Jesus says to us. The world we live in is shaky, amen? Right. So things happen in this world that make us nervous. Um, Philadelphia lived in this shaky context where people would actually run away from the city of brotherly love. Um, but when things get shaky in our life, we get to run to the city of God's consuming love. We don't run away from something. We get to run towards something. We do not fear the walls of God's city crumbling down on us when things get shaky. We know that they are permanent structures, which if we can make it to the city of God, we are safe and secure in his presence forever. His walls don't fall down. He is immovable and steadfast. And so when culture shifts and when things change in our life, um, we are called to be faithful because this world that we live in is shaky. So we have the same call that Philadelphia had. World is a little bit shaky. Things are a little bit hinky. You're not quite sure what's going on in your life. Be faithful in a shaky world because we belong to an unshakable kingdom. This is some of the best news a pastor can preach. We belong to an unshakable kingdom. It says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is on earth. Yes? No? No. Okay, you're with me, okay? Our citizenship is where? In heaven. That means that if you have Christ in your heart and you've trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins and you said, Jesus is my Lord from now until the day I die, that means your citizenship is not here, though you live here. Your citizenship is there and you're just kind of taking a journey on this earth, okay? So if our citizenship is in heaven, then we have a completely different outlook on things when it gets shaky, right? Those things can't really touch us. Our life might give away, but we belong up there, right? We might lose a job or things go wrong in our life, but things get shaky here. Our kingdom's up there, and so we have this kingdom focus. Colossians 1 says, if we have been raised with Christ... So we should strive for the things above. We recognize that God's kingdom is where our home really is. Our hearts are set on that. Our minds are set on that. We pray in that mindset. But we do not become so disconnected from the world around us that we cannot reach out to the people around us, right? Who live in a shaky world and who don't understand the kingdom of God. 
We belong to an unshakable kingdom, which gives us steadfast and immovable feet to walk within a shaky world. We cannot be shaken because of God's love for us. So we are to remain faithful always. We are to remain faithful always. No matter what we see or feel or experience in the world, we are to remain faithful because our feet are planted in the kingdom of God. If we are poor or rich, if we have opportunities or we lack opportunities, if we are rejected by friends or received by them, if we lose our job or keep our job, if we lose our house or keep our house, if we have relationships or if we don't have relationships, if we lose loved ones to illnesses or car accidents or we have loved ones in our life, if we move or if we stay put, if there's great calamity in the world and we're not sure what it's going to mean for us, if we suffer loss or embrace joys, we are, according to Jesus, to hold fast, to remain faithful, to recognize that our feet are in the kingdom of heaven, though our bodies might be here for now. We are to keep his word and uphold his name. The king that we serve is immovable in his love and in his grace towards us. And the kingdom that we inherit through him is immense and unshakable, absolutely unshakable. And we reside here for now, but not forever. And I'm going to close with this verse, and then we're going to go into a time of communion with the Lord. And this is from Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 12. And it's simply titled, in my version of the scriptures, A Kingdom That Cannot Be Shaken. And I think, well, that's pretty obvious. So we're going to go ahead and read that one this morning. I'm going to start in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, innumerable angels in festival gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word of Abel. What he's describing here is the heavenly kingdom and all of the gloriousness that exists there. And it says, you have come to this kingdom. So see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you this morning. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But he has promised Yet once more I will shake, not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that are not shaken, that cannot be shaken, may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews tells us, that one day, just like Revelation tells us, God will shake the earth. And the things that are shakeable will fall away. And the things that are steadfast will be those who have remained in God faithful. And they will be pillars immovable on the day that God shakes. Now, God might shake the earth in his cosmic, heavenly, all-knowing way while we are alive. I don't know the date. Only God knows the date. He might shake us in our own personal lives. But regardless of how we are shaken, the shakable things pass away and the unshakable things, Christ in our life, stays immovable and steadfast. So I want to ask you one question this morning as we close and go to prayer and communion. Are your feet unshakable in God this morning? 
Where are you constantly turning to when things get shaky? Are you running away from the city of God or are you running towards his steadfast and immovable love? We each have an instinct and uh, we want to follow the instinct that says God's kingdom is where we should run to this morning. Let's go ahead and close in prayer and if I could have the ushers prepared to take communion to the people. Lord, thank you for the ways in which you have taught us from your word this beautiful and yet simple message. Lord, your kingdom is unshakable, and you have invited us to become partakers in this unshakable kingdom, not because of what we've done, Lord, but because of what you've done in us and for us. You alone went to the cross. You alone died for the sins of the world. You alone rose again on the third day and reigned in glory and splendor in heaven, and you have said, if you will but trust in me, your feet will become immovable and unshakable, and you will become pillar in my kingdom forever and ever. We will rejoice in fellowship. Lord, we give you glory for what you've done for us. And we ask this morning that you would confirm in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and all that we are, that you are an immovable, unshakable God. And that when we are with you, we are also immovable and unshakable, come what may in this world. We give you thanks for that. And it's in your name that we pray.